Okay, folks, tonight we're going to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So uh, if you want to open up your Bibles directly in the middle, you'll get to Psalms, and then you kind of go over a couple of pages, and you'll get to Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. So that's maybe just the best way of doing it. It's just a right of center. Um, I'll summarize chapter 1 for you really quickly, and then we'll move into what, what chapter 2 is all about. Ecclesiastes is Solomon writing about his life with uh, wisdom and what he has learned through his life. And he's reflecting on the things that have kind of gone on around him. And he's, uh, he's saying, Hevel, Hevel, all is Hevel, um, which translated maybe on your Bible, it will say it's vanity or it's meaningless or it's empty. Literally, the word means it's empty. It's temporary. What he's saying is like so much of this world, it's like smoke. It feels like there's some substance to it. It feels like you can grab it. But as soon as you try to do so, it just dissipates and, and, and vanishes and you're ending up holding nothing. It feels like there's something there. It feels like there should be something there, but there's no substance to it. And so he's saying, look, uh, yes, there is beauty. Yes, there is goodness in this world, but it is hevel. It is impossible to grab hold of it because it's fleeting. It doesn't last for any length of time. And so what he's doing is he's conducting an experiment for us that we need to really pay attention to. It's one of the most important science experiments in all of Scripture, and yet we don't really talk about Ecclesiastes for chapter 2 very often. And so what he's doing is he's doing an experiment that goes beyond our capabilities. Okay, so chapter 1, Solomon, who is king of Israel, is explaining to us that he's going to use his wealth and he's going to use his influence and he's going to use his power that's beyond any of what we could muster or manage. And he is going to, um, and well, you'll see pretty quickly just how, how true this is. And he's trying to see if there's anything worthwhile under the sun. Is there anything under the sun that is worth pursuing, that is worthwhile? And so he's going to test all that we can pursue. He's going to test all that we can go after, all that power can get, all that money can get, all that affluence and influence can get. Is it worth it? How much is enough to make us happy? And that's the big experiment. So let's get into, into Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was Hevel, it was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. How depressing does he sound? Oh, we're only here for a short time. What's the point? What's the use? We'll see. Well, and, 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 but he's coming from this point of, I have so much, I have everything. So why is it not clicking? Why is it not clicking? And the experiment starts. And here's what he's, he says he's going to do. He says, I'm going to test pleasure. Okay? And I'm going to test it hard. I'm going to use all my resources. I'm going to use all my time. I'm going to use all my energy, all my creativity to consume as much pleasure as I possibly can. And I can't, as much as I've studied this week, I can't begin to fathom the epic parties that Solomon is throwing, okay? He's saying, listen, I'm going to devote myself to this. And it's complete hedonism. It's just 
beyond the pale. And he begins to systematically throw the largest parties that the world had ever seen at that point and probably since. He's going to have the comedians in, he's got the best food, he's got the musicians in, he's got the DJs in, he's, got the, he's rolling out the barrels of wine. He is going after it. He is going big. Seven days a week for an extended period of time. Night after night after night. No one's really sure how long he went this way, but we do know it was an extended period, and the parties were epic, because the Bible tells us that the parties were epic. Now, Second King, First Kings 4 will, will tell us, and we'll go there in a wee second. But you see, here's something that we need to be careful about just before we get into this too much. Uh, comparing ourselves to Solomon in, in, in some sort of way that Solomon didn't really do things the way you know, we do things now. And he says, yeah, he did parties, you know, but did he party? You know, say, so did he really party the way we want to party? Did, you know, would he compare to, to Ibiza? Would he compare to some of these other party centrals? Would he compare to some of the stag dudes now? Would he compare to, well, First Kings 4, he, he's going to list, why? First Kings 4 is going to list what it took to throw these parties each day, okay? This was the daily requirements for one party. Verse 22 of First Kings 4. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. That's 220 liters for those who like the metric system. 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer and gazelles and roebucks, not starbucks, roebucks, and fat and fowl, or like, you know, it's like chickens and little fowl birds and yard birds and all. Okay, and, and so Solomon here is throwing a feast that could feed, and, and every commentary that I looked at was coming up with the same sort of numbers. You're talking between 15 and 20,000 people a night, every night, for this extended period of time. Okay, so, so that means, you know, that wee meal that you booked at a restaurant for a dozen people, he's going to look at that and go, doesn't count. That, that, that's not, that doesn't even matter. Get, get you in through the door at my party. He would mock it, give me a break. He threw these epic parties night after night after night after night after night. And eventually, eventually he gets tired waking up in Tijuana with a butterfly tattoo on his lower back uh, and sort of with this hangover. And he says, what is going on? So he goes on for night. He says, this isn't working. I'm not happy. So he says, I've got to make something of my life. I'm spending all this time drinking. I'm spending all this time eating. I'm spending all this time dancing. I'm spending all this time being everybody's mate. I need to make something of my life. And as he moves on, and listen, you'll notice that as we go through this, there's a progression. And it's this kind of stages that we go through as we get older. You know, kind of once we break free from mum and dad, uh, and we kind of hit that sort of student age, we hit the party scene. Uh, and we want to party and we want to live life. And it goes, yeah, it's all about the big nights out. And then there comes a point where you kind of wake up and says, oh man, I can't do this anymore. I need to make something of my life. I can't do this all the time. I need to do something. And this is what he decides to do. So he unpacks this pursuit of pleasure, and he says, okay, I've moved on from the party scene, and I want to make something of my life. Here's what he says in verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kind of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So Solomon leaves behind the party scene, not, not entirely, but his focus shifts a wee bit now. To, and his focus is on trying to build something with his life. Now, to give you an idea of what kind of houses that we're talking about here, uh, we're told that the temple took seven years to build. 
and was one of the ancient wonders of the world. Okay, so that's the lavishness that he threw at it. One of these wonders of the world. It was ornate with gold and precious stones and took, as says, seven years to build. Now, on top of that, he built himself a house. And while it wasn't one of the wonders of the ancient world, he did take twice as long to build it. He put 14 years of his life into building his palace. So you can only have a sort of a sense of idea how much planning went into that one. And not only does he build himself a house and build God a house, he builds a house for all of his wives. That's 700 houses that he builds. And he's saying, I did that. I built that. Look at what I have done. I'm a success. What I turn my hand to, look at what I have accomplished. There is something that kind of just buzzes in your soul whenever you achieve something, whenever you finish a project. Uh, some of the, the guys in here tonight, they work with their hands and, and they get that feeling every day. I'm jealous of that. I wish I had that every day. But even in the garden, whenever you get in and you do a project and you finish it and you can sit down and you can look at it and you can drink your uh, bottle of Coke or you can drink your tea or whatever you want to drink uh, and you sit on your porch or you sit on the gazebo or you sit wherever you want to sit and you look at it and you go, looks pretty good. Uh, Wife, just uh, if you want to gaze at my achievements. I did that, just saying. And there is this sense of achievement, there's this sense of accomplishment of, look what I done. And, and there's this sense of, Solomon's not gonna be outdone. Notice, I mean, he doesn't just plant a garden, I planted a forest, you know? So you might turn around and say, oh, Davy Werner, you know, I like what you've done with your roses and your geraniums, but, uh, I planted a forest. <laughs> you know, I mean, what do you do with the 900 acres in the back of your garden? <laughs> you know, I planted a forest. Oh, and by the way, I also got all the pools to water it and all, and it's all planned. He goes beyond what most of us can comprehend. And so he goes on from this party scene, and all that he's doing, he's getting drunk and, and he's getting hung over, and he moves on and he wants to build houses and he wants to, to try and leave a legacy and make a name for himself. And he begins to build gardens and build things that other people can enjoy, and he builds and he builds and he builds, whether it's wives, uh, houses, or whatever he puts his hand to, he wants to make something of himself. And then he moves on from there to, to the next stage that comes after that. Uh, even in our lives, we go from that kind of party one or just wild and free to, to building a success to whenever we just want to sit back and enjoy it. And life progresses on uh, again. So look at verse 7. I brought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. So I had slaves of slaves. And I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Now, notice he's t- that means he's taking it from other people. All right? He's building an empire. Uh, under uh, Solomon, the Israeli empire was the largest that it ever was historically. And he's conquering other kingdoms. He's conquering other, uh, other provinces. And, he, and he's bringing home the spoils of war and adding to his prestige and fame. He says, I have singers men and women, and many concubines. 
the delight of the sons of man. So we leave the party scene. We leave the building scene. And now we go into a life of wealth and ease. He's living a luxurious lifestyle. What he's saying here, I had slaves and slaves of slaves, and I had the servants. And he says, I didn't do anything for myself anymore. I worked hard, and then I stopped. And everyone did everything for me. I woke up at 11. Somebody had my breakfast ready. Somebody had ate it for me as well. And, so, you know, and then I go for my, my first massage, and then I go for some lunch, and then I go for my second massage. And he moves on there, and, and, he, and he gets his facial then, and he gets his pedicure. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, I didn't do anything for myself anymore. I, I enjoyed all that I had accomplished. I sat back, and I enjoyed the money that I had made. And he's saying, like, I had a cattle ranch. I had a horse ranch. I took advantage of my wealth, of my clout, of my power. Uh, you know, it's like, I think maybe the, the equivalent today would be, I didn't buy or I didn't download or I didn't stream music. I just bought the band. You know the way you hear these millionaires and saying, oh yeah, I heard Beyonce had a new song, so I flew her in to perform at my, my birthday party. This is what Solomon did, all right? Any artist coming out of Jerusalem says, okay, you're in my house band now. You play for me, you work for me. And he's the king, so it wasn't just the guy starting out. He brought in the top players, you know, professional singers, men and women. He brought them all in. That's how he ruled. And then he goes in for what he's really, I was going to say famous for, what he was infamous for. He gets into women. Solomon had 700 wives. I don't know how he did it. And he had 300 concubines. On top of that, at his beck and call, a thousand women. Solomon, and I'm trying to be respectful here, Solomon was experienced. Okay? Whatever he wanted, whatever he could imagine, he was able to do. Okay? He was uninhibited in this part of his life. He would make Hugh Hefner look like a schoolboy. Oh, you got six blonde girls with you? Listen, I married six blonde girls in April. <laughs> you know, says, I have a thousand women. Forget, forget your Playboy mansion. I got a thousand and seven hundred mansions. This man was in a, in, uninhibited and he did whatever. So what's his conclusions then? What's his conclusions for this lifestyle experiment? Well, verse 9, he says, I became so great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, which is a really funny thing. He says, he says you know, I was really popular. Well, no kidding. <laughs> you, you throw parties for 15,000, 20,000 people every night for, for a long time. You're going to make some friends. You start throwing around money in houses and throwing money into the economy and employing people and making all these things happen. There's always going to be work. There's always going to be catering. There's always going to be, you're going to be popular. Everyone's going to love you. You're winning wars. You're bringing home the spoils of war. You're going to be popular. But it's this next part that, that's a really big piece of the puzzle. 
and it's different to how it plays out for you and me, but it's different for, for Solomon. He says, but also my wisdom remained with me. That's really interesting. So here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I never forgot what I was really doing. I never forgot the plan. I never got so caught up or so lost in seeking pleasure that I forgot what I was really trying to do. I never forgot this was an experiment from the beginning. And so he, I'm here to see if there's really any value in anything or if it's all heval, if it's all just empty, grasping at smoke. And so he never forgot what he was about. And so if you're sitting here tonight and going, oh, experiment, huh? Well, maybe I should perform some experiments. Maybe I should see if there's anything new under the sun, anything that gives pleasure, right? Well, let me just stop you there because Ecclesiastes has already been written. We have it. We don't need the experiment repeated. Okay, so if you're thinking, ah, but maybe that could be first Ecclesiastes. Maybe there could be second Ecclesiastes or third Ecclesiastes. No, okay, so um, Ecclesiastes already exists, so whatever you think you're going to go and do, that's just sin, okay? That's just pride, that's just selfishness, because the experiment's been completed, it's been done, so we know where, where we land on it. But let's keep reading, because there are some things in here that you're not going to like, especially if you've grown up in church, okay? Because Usually when we've been growing up the church, we've been told a few wee lies that come along. And it's, ne it's never malicious. It's never done like out of badness. But it's only when you get older when you suddenly realize, hey, hold on, that's just not true. And then we end up, and, and it can be then where, where people start having questions about, well, what was church really about? Because what they told me was this, and, and what actually my experience and my, my, uh, my life has taught me something different. And so we, we need to be very careful about what we do here because... Uh, scripture will, will, if you've grown up with some of these lies and you're holding on to some of these lies, Scripture's about to disprove you here and you want to make sure that you're on the side of Scripture, not just on the side of, of holding to a tradition. Okay, so pick the right side. Here we go. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. What he has just said is really profound. What he's saying is, I ha and I've heard a plethora of preachers who disagree with him here, but what he's saying is, the party scene, oh man, I had a really good time at all those parties. I had a great time at those parties. Uh, and actually, you know what? Uh, all, all those things that were going on, I, I, I had a, they were fun. Because what, often what we hear is that preachers are saying, oh, no, he didn't. He thought he was having fun, but he wasn't really. Well, no. He, he, I mean, he's a wise man. He said, no, I had a good time. I enjoyed the parties. I enjoyed waking up drunk in Tijuana with my butterfly tattoo. I enjoyed the epicness of the party. I enjoyed those things that were happening. I think sometimes in church we like to pretend that everyone who doesn't think like us and act like us is miserable. That's just not true. We need to sort of wise up to that a wee bit, I think, because the, the reality is that sin is fun. That's why people get caught up in it. That's why people keep getting drawn to it. If sin wasn't fun, no one would bother with it. So it's, we have to be wise here. And so he's saying, look, this party scene, I had fun. 
I had a good time. The building of the houses and the acquisition and the building of the pools and the planting of gardens. I had a great time and I enjoyed being able to look and say, this is my home. This is what I built. This is what I'm enjoying. I enjoy it. I love my house. I love my car. I love my child. I love my horses. I love it. Then he goes on and on and on. Verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from the pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. What did he get out of it? He did get pleasure out of it. He did get pleasure out of it, but he got fleeting, momentary pleasure. He says, I enjoyed it. It just didn't last very long. It was Hevel. Because listen, verse 11. Because then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. All that money, all that effort, all that time, the expense that I had to go to chase those highs. Behold, all was Hevel. It was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Says for all the effort, I ended up with nothing. Yes, it was fun at the time, but I'm standing here now and I'm still empty-handed, grasping at that smoke. It feels like there was something there that I could almost taste it, but I ended up. I still didn't have anything to show for it. And, and his point is that when he starts throwing the party, he has a blast. That first night, they're bringing in all those cows and they're slaughtering them and the comedians are coming in and the barbecue pit's there and, and the wine's flowing and the, and the, the DJ's starting up and, and, and the new house band is starting their new songs. He, he enjoys it. And that was on Monday. And that was on Tuesday. And that was on Wednesday. But by Thursday, it was a wee bit redundant. You know, it's like, well, we've kind of done this before. It feels like we've been here before. So, so we maybe need to do this a wee bit bigger. And so on Friday, they do it a wee bit bigger. And Saturday, they do it a wee bit bigger again. And then on Sunday, it feels like, oh, this, it still feels like deja vu. It, it's the same people. It's the same place. It's the same kind of sequence of events. And so it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and gets grander and grander. And there's more wine and there's more cows and there's more dancers and there's more. And then on Monday night, they do it again. And on Tuesday night, they do it again. And Wednesday night, they do it again. And it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until the party physically cannot get any bigger. And when they hit this huge level where they can't physically do anything else, they can't bring in any more entertainment, they can't bring in any more comedians, they can't bring in any more wine, they can't bring in any more people, they have all the food that they can eat. Uh, eventually it got predictable. It got boring because you were in this rut, this repetitive rut, and so he's saying, you know what, this is lame. It was fine for a while, but I need to do something else. I need to go make something of my life. And he starts building houses, and he builds houses and houses and houses. And after 14, 20 years, he gets the house, he gets the temple and all these things. He digs the pools, uh, and he builds the forest. You don't get much bigger than a forest. So what do you do after you plant a forest? <laughs> well, he builds the 700 houses for his wives. What do you do after that? And he says, okay, right, well, uh, I can't build anything else, so I, I guess I'll just have to enjoy it now. And he drinks it all in. 
and pretty soon he's not doing anything anymore. There's only so many massages you can get. There's only so many swims in the pools that you can go for. There's only so many times you can sit out in the balcony and look out over your life. And so he turns to women. And one woman doesn't satisfy him. So he goes to another, and then he goes to another, and goes to another, and another, and another, and another, and another. And then what he's going to do is realize that it doesn't really make a difference. Once you get to a thousand women, when you have 700 wives and 300 concubines, what is 301 concubines? What difference is one more going to make, really? I mean, that's just the reality of it. I mean, Solomon did not want for shape or for eye color or or, or hair color or personality. or He ran out of fantasies. Understand that. He ran out of fantasies to have with these women. Anything that he could think of, he done. He plays it all out. And in the end, he's done everything that there is to do. He's pursued it all, and he's back in the same place that he was before he even started this experiment. And it feels like life is boring. It feels like life is predictable. And being a little bit frustrated and on the edge because of all this. Now, we need to have a wee bit of a talk now. (laughs) Because if you're not a believer in church tonight, and if you're talking to people who are not Christians and you're maybe struggling in your own faith and you maybe haven't been in church for a long time and you're here tonight, maybe you're hearing what I'm saying and everything that you believed about Christians is just being confirmed to you. That, oh yeah, here we go. Yeah, I hear what Solomon's saying and you're resonating with it all. God is in the heavens and he's just this eternal killjoy. He doesn't want me to be happy. And sometimes you'll hear Christians saying, it. God doesn't want you to be happy. He just wants you to be holy. Just holy. Because ah, I'm convinced that the greatest happiness is found in holiness, but you know, not they're not separate things. And it's like he's he, he's up here, like God's just up there, and he's going, okay, no, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're going to homeschool your kids. Uh, and you're going to sing songs that aren't just as good as the songs that you hear on the radio. Uh, and you're going to kind of have, uh, uh, if, and uh, you know, I'll just send you to hell because if you step out of line, because hey, that's how I rule. Uh, and if you do things how I want to, listen, don't have any creative ideas for yourself. You know, instead of Sprite t-shirts, right, you have to wear Holy Spirit t-shirts. Oh, and, and instead of Abercrombie and Fitch, you have to wear a bread caram and fish t-shirt or or something like us here because you know that's christian culture it's kind of like the world but just less good and just a wee bit less cool and just a wee bit less funny and it's almost as if we've decided that god has doomed us to live in this little bubble of boredom with just slightly subpar experiences and that's our life because, hey, he's God, and we live for him now. We work for him now. And he controls heaven and hell. And so if we step out of line, we're doomed. And the irony of this way of thinking to me is such that God is the author of all good things. Not the destroyer of good things, but he's the author. He's the source of good things. And I don't know what happened. I don't know when it happened. I don't know how all of a sudden... God became the enemy of happiness, that he became this person who who hates us and doesn't like us. But 
somehow he is anti-joy or anti-delight. Why is the church so often filled with solemn-faced people who try to restrict joy and stop people from laughing and stopping people from having fun? When God provided the natural world to be delighted and to give him glory when we delight in the things that he has given to us. It's his idea. He's the author of good things. He's not the enemy of it. And I don't know how all of a sudden God became this cosmic killjoy whenever there's not one pleasure under the sun that he did not create or ordain for us to have. Now, it's definitely been perverted by sin and it's definitely been twisted and monopolized and all the rest. But I would contend with you tonight that we have been wired for pleasure. It's just part of this, that we have this deep longing in the core of who we are that cries out for happiness and cries out for delight. Because let's be honest, if we think back to some of the happiest memories, some of the best times, it is the times whenever you're bent over into laughing. Okay, whether it's friends from college or or family family holidays, and you just are having so much fun with your friends, and you just praise God for for what He's given to you. One of the best examples is young children. Okay, Um, from their second they are born, they are wired to desire the things that make them happy, okay? And they don't care how it impacts other people, okay? They seek their own happiness, whether it's 2 a.m., 4 a.m., whether you're just asleep, they don't care. I want food, okay? Give me my bottle. Give me a thumb. I don't care if it's in the middle of church. I don't care if, it, if you're in the middle, getting ready for, to go out. Change my nappy. Give me some food. Entertain with me. Get down on the floor. I'm going to get in bed beside you. Shift over a bit. And they will do whatever they want because they are wired for happiness. And they'll cry as long as it takes because that's what they want. That's what they're wired for. They seek out the things that make them happy. Now, the funny thing is, this never changes. Just to pursue those, the things that we seek after change a wee bit. And so it looks all different the older that you get, but the pursuit is always the same. We seek out happiness. We seek out things that we can delight in that fill our hearts with pleasure. It's the motivating thing that we, in all the things that we do. In the 1600s, there was this kind of freak show genius mathematician slash philosopher slash theologian. He was a really strange guy to be around. Uh, His name was Blaise Pascal, and he said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means uh, they, they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with, with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. It is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. And so what he's saying is that even when you take your own life, you do so in the pursuit of your own happiness or the end of your own suffering. And so we're all motivated towards this, this, this kind of goal, this, this motivation in our, in our hearts. So pleasure isn't the problem, nor is the pursuit of pleasure. That's not the problem with the world. So what do we do with Solomon? What do we do with him? 
What do we do with all this that he's saying when he says all these pleasures that he seeks with all his might and then comes back and says, well, you can pursue it if you want, but it's meaningless. It's just chasing the wind. What do we do with that? Well, let me, let me give you another theologian, Immanuel Kant. Um, he was a philosopher who taught that the level to which you enjoy something lessens its virtue. So basically he's saying that there's more virtue in hating your wife and staying with her because that there's loyalty and commitment there than if you love her and stay with her because you love her because that's selfish, right? Emmanuel Kant needed a hug, I think, from his mommy a wee bit more, okay? It's just this very twisted thinking. But then along comes C.S. Lewis, and in The Weight of Glory, which is just a brilliant book, if you are a Christian and you haven't got a copy of C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, get yourself a copy of The Weight of Glory. It's really good, really helpful. In The Weight of Glory, he says this, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And so God, according to C.S. Lewis, doesn't look at us and go, I can't believe they're seeking their own pleasure. I can't believe they're trying to have fun. I can't believe that they're laughing. They're supposed to be holy. But he looks at us and says, no, no, you're not seeking hard enough. Uh, because here, here's the famous part, because uh, immediately after this, he says, for we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the ho- offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And this is the problem. This is, it's not that we pursue pleasure is the problem. It's the fact that we're looking for it in all the wrong places. That's the problem. That's the problem with this world. It's not that looking after pleasure is a wrong thing. It's that we have no idea what real pleasure can be found. And when sin entered the world and fractured it, Romans 1 says that what happened is that you and I exchanged the infinite creator God for his creation. So we went after the things that God created instead of going after God himself. And when that took place, we began to settle for temporary fleeting pleasures rather than what is eternal and lasting and satisfying. And so let me try and go at it this way, okay? Um, If you can imagine what life was like maybe 10 years ago, you probably had an idea of where you wanted to be now. You created a a 10-year plan of what you want to accomplish, what you'd want to do. And so the last 10 years or so, you put your energy, and and whether you did this consciously or subconsciously, you probably did this. Um, Most of you kind of thought, well, we're coming out of school, okay, so if I can just get out of school, if I can just pass these exams, um, if I can get a good job, maybe find someone, settle down, get married, if I could have children, maybe if I can make enough money to get a nice holiday, change the car. And you kind of have this kind of plan of what you'd like to do and what you'd like to achieve in the next 10 years. And you begin to work on this 10-year plan. doesn't always work because what happens is... um, even if you meet these goals, you never really stop to appreciate it because once you get about three years into a 10-year plan, you always start a new 10-year plan. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like we can get halfway through and go, it's, kind of, it's not working, let's start again. And we kind of, you know, every new year, we kind of have these new resolutions and these new plans because it's, it feels like it's not working. It feels like we're not getting anywhere. And it struggles and we fight it and it doesn't satisfy. And almost all of us, whether we admit it or whether we don't, We've bought into this philosophy that what we need to make us happy is not something different, but just more of the same. 
Okay, we have a wee bit of money, so if we can get more money, then we'll be happy. We have a house, but if I could get a bigger house, then yeah. I know we'll get some time off, but if I could get even more time off, or go even further away, or that will be what I want. And it's madness. It's absolute madness. But our economy is kind of based on it. What would happen to the stock exchange if everyone woke up tomorrow morning content? <laughs> Fall flat. Buy, sell. Nah, no, it's okay. I've got enough. It happens now. But even on a smaller scale, we don't buy out of need in the West. We buy out of boredom. Nobody buys a new car because theirs has literally blown up and fallen to pieces. I mean, I, I listen to some people talking this insanity, you know, and I, I actually heard one guy says, well, I mean, it was due and oil changed something. What was it going to do? It was going to cost 40 quid to get the oil changed. I, I'm not going to throw that kind of money at it. I just got a new car. What? You know, and we don't buy clothes because ours are done. I mean, we say we do, but we don't. I mean, you know, oh, my, my, my jeans have got holes in them. They're literally disintegrating. I know what I'll do. I'll go to, to the shop and I'll spend 80 quid on a pair of jeans that have holes and look like they are being disintegrated. And then I'll have everything that I need and I'll look really good in them. Yeah, okay, sure, why not? It's just madness. And I'm not saying that that's what you do and I don't do that. It, it, we do this. We all do this, okay? And it may not be the car for you. It might be the clothes or it might be Amazon and your, car, your house is piling up with Amazon boxes and you don't remember buying half the stuff and say, what, 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 okay? And it's outright evidence that we live boring, predictable lives and we try to numb it and we try to turn it off by acquisition, a new toy to just distract us for a wee bit longer. Retail therapy, anyone? Anyone heard of that? And Solomon is saying, guys, listen, I did it. I have done it. And here's the deal. It doesn't work, not long term. I have done it to a level that you can never match me in. So more isn't the answer. More isn't the answer. So look, when we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he says, God has placed eternity in our hearts. Now, that's a really abstract idea, so I'm going to try and explain it to you very quickly, okay? Because uh, I believe it with all my heart, but I, I don't <laughs> really know how to explain it. Um, but I, I think it's right. What this text is saying is that God has placed eternity into our hearts is that at some level, in the deepest parts of our souls, in the deepest parts of our souls, our souls remember what it was like before sin. That there's this part of us that God has put in us that, that craves what life used to be like before sin came into the world. That we have this idea, this instinctive thing inside us that kind of goes, oh, I don't know what I'm looking for, but there's something. It's that kind of, there's something there that points us back to what it was like. And the soul at some really deep level has this groove that's been cut into it where it remembers what it was like before sin entered the world. And so we instinctively know at this deep subconscious level, at some point, at some point we were full and at one time we were happy and at one time there was nothing weighing us down and the soul is groaning for that to be filled again. The problem is that groove is eternal shaped. And we, all we have to fill it with is temporary, fleeting, havel. 
and smoke. And so we cram it with temporary fleeting joys and it never works. And then we think, okay, if it gets bigger, we can make it bigger and the temporary pleasures last a little bit longer or maybe if we can get something, leave it. And we're trying everything to fill the chasm and it's not working. And it's never going to take place because it's never going to be enough. And here's why I'm really afraid. Here's why I'm really scared because Solomon finally got to the end and was able to realize this. But because we don't have the money, we don't have the resources that he was able to throw at it, we're going to be conned into thinking, well, if I just work a wee bit harder, if I just get a wee bit more money, if I just party a wee bit more, if I can just add that wee bit more to it, maybe I can be happy. Maybe I can get all my ducks in a row and it will be what I want it to be. And my fear is that we're going to spend the rest of our lives chasing our tails chasing things that we already possess that aren't going to satisfy. Ah, no time's going on. Let me just finish with this. One of my favorite stories of, is John 4, the woman at the well. And Jesus goes to go through Samaria. Nobody went through Samaria, but Jesus went through Samaria. And he sits down at a well, and this woman shows up in the middle of the day. Now, at the current time, she's exchanging sex for rent. Okay, this is how she's paying for her rent. And she's showing up in the middle of the day because if she went in the morning, she'd probably get beaten up by the other woman and shunned by the rest of the woman. So she's having to come by herself. She's an outcast. And she shows up in the middle of the day and Jesus says, hey, can I have some water? And she scoops up some of the water and she's kind of freaked out that this kind of Jewish man is speaking to her and she hands him this water. He takes a drink and then says, you know, I'm going to drink this, but I'm going to be thirsty again. It's not really going to work for me. And so, you know, it's almost like, well, do you want another cup? I can get you another drink of water. I mean, the well's here. And he says, no. This, this is my paraphrase, by the way. This isn't exactly how John Ford talks about it. And he starts talking to her about water. And it's like, look, people are going to come to this well all day long. The people here this morning will be back again tomorrow because the water will eventually run out. They'll get thirsty again. And they're going to have to come back. And then he says, listen, if you drink the water that I'm offering, if you drink the water that I'm bringing, you'll never get thirsty again. And she misses it. She gets caught up in religion. And she gets caught up in cultures. And she gets caught up in all these other things. And I hope you remember this story. And she says, like, you don't even have you know, a cup. I had to get you the water. What, what are you talking about? But here's what Jesus is saying to this woman about water. He's saying, look, listen, I have eternal, I am eternal, and I can fill this groove. And for all those men that have taken advantage of you for all these years, and for all the people who've belittled you and given you that up and down look, and all the places that you've tried to fill your soul with and ended up broken and feeling worthless with, I can fill that empty, worthless feeling void. It can be overcome because I fill the groove. I fill that missing part of your soul that you can't quite put your finger on. Because I'm eternal, and I and I alone can fill this void. Come to me and never be thirsty again. And Isaiah, if he was here, he would stand up and ask you the question, well, how long are you going to do this for? How long are you going to keep chasing your tail for? That's what Isaiah 55 says. He says, how long will you buy bread that doesn't satisfy? How long are you going to drink wine that makes you more thirsty? How long are you going to continue to do the same things over and over and over and over and over again in the hopes that finally you're going to find fulfillment? You're not going to. And then he goes on and Isaiah gives this invitation, the same invitation that comes from Jesus at the well. Isaiah says, come and buy from me. Come and eat bread. Drink my wine. Come sit at my table and partake in the richest fare. Come and be filled. Come and be satisfied. 
Okay, so all, and I know this is ambiguous and it's really vague and it's one of those things that says, okay, that was really interesting. And you kind of leave and then say, so what do we do now? So I don't really know. I don't really, sorry. We'll, we'll, we'll. Here's the takeaway. If you, if you go to the gym, and if, if you're burdened with such things, we'll see you tomorrow night at Fit Defense. But as you walk up the stairs to, to where the treadmills are, you hear this humming and you hear the pounding of feet, and you hear that sound, and it's the treadmills. And uh, so what you do is you go in, and, and you get your earphones plugged in, and you try to drown out the other sound, and you either watch the TV show, or you just get lost in your own music. And for just a few seconds, it helps you to forget that even though you're running, you're not really going anywhere. Listen, I, I know most of you and I know that maybe some of you will not like this, but I love you, and I don't care that you don't like it because you need to hear this. The bottom line is that can you take that step, or are you going to stay on that treadmill f for even longer? And doing the same things, continuing to just be hypnotized by the fact that you're not really going anywhere, even though you're trying to make all this progress. The reality is that nothing under the sun, there's nothing new. Nothing that lasts. Nothing that really satisfies for any real length of time. You have to look, not under the sun, but you have to look beyond the sun to the one who's eternal. You have to look to God and see him. That groove can only be filled by him. And that's why Jesus echoes this invitation throughout the history. Come and thirst no more. We're going to sing a song now, so I'm going to ask the, the musicians to come up and, and sing, and then I'll come up and, and we'll close.